to be a woman in like the 1970s is so different than being a woman in 2022. Greetings, hello, felicitations, and welcome to The Feminist Present, the podcast where we use the gift of feminism to figure out what the F is going on right now. I am Laura Good. I'm Adrian Dobb. Nice to see you, Adrian. You've uh, you've been an ephemeral presence here. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Through no fault of your own. Yes. Uh, so, uh, elephant in the room, the episode you're about to hear very mm-hmm. specifically does not feature me uh, on account of I was... He had the plague. Uh, coughing a whole yeah. lot while this was being recorded. And I didn't want to grace people with my my uh, <laughs> Zoom germs. And so I, to, uh, I'm, to I'm not on credit, this. To credit, I think the listeners should know that we were texting like right up until the recording time. And you were saying things like, I think I can do it. I'll just try not to cough too much. <laughs> so the heart, the heart was willing and the body was unable, I think, in this case. <laughs> Absolutely unable. Yeah. And so, yeah, you're, you're about to listen to the first of what are two... Uh, <laughs> Laura solo efforts. It was like a fish concert. You did a one hour solo while I <laughs> while I coughed jam. while I hacked up a lung somewhere in the back. <laughs> you know, that's a lot like a fish concert. I'm rolling with that metaphor. Yeah, it was really fun. I mean, I I genuinely enjoy sitting around talking to like really bright women about the really excellent books that they wrote and uh still pretty chuffed that that's part of my job. Yeah. But yeah, this one was so fun. This book is The Great Stewardess Rebellion by Nalak Shane Wolfhart. It is such a fun read. The The jacket copy sort of promises that it is nonfiction that reads like a novel. And my discovery was that it could not have been more. So I learned so much about how crucial stewardesses were to the entire foundation yeah. of second wave feminism. Was this something you had known before, Adrian? No, like no, about the stewardesses com- and now and all, all that? No idea. I mean, it made sense because it was such an exposed kind of service industry. Like in hindsight, like totally. once you read it, you're like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. But it makes tons of sense. I don't think I ever said those words. I don't think I ever read those words. So it was like, it's, it's really, it's both a piece of history that feels incredibly important and one that I have to say I I was not aware of. Under-acknowledged for sure. Yeah, it was a fascinating read. Nell was a blast to talk to. I mean it just made me think of like I don't know. I have had so many experiences where stewardesses now called flight attendants have absolutely saved my ass as a parent traveling with small children. Mm. One of the silver linings of the pandemic to me was really like my younger son is now four. So like the two years kind of sped right through the worst time of traveling with toddlers. But like, I don't know. I always feel deep affection for flight attendants because they've always really helped me out. Have, have you guys, you guys have traveled with River so far, right? We have, yeah. Uh, twice now. Oh, that's right. Three you went times. to Europe. Uh, once within the US, twice to Europe. Yeah. She's pretty good still. She hasn't entered the terrible phase yet. Yeah. I remember you saying. A big sleeper. Yeah. On her third flight, she had, um, so she had a bassinet and she was up front. And she sort of used it as kind of a speaker's rostrum and she would point wildly and she would sort of jut out her jaw. She actually looked a little bit like Benito Mussolini doing it. And she would like shout. And you were just like, you know, she's like <laughs> talking about the enemy of the fatherland or whatever. It was weird. Um, so that was weird. But like every, but the, but yeah, the flight attendants were pretty cool about the fact that her child was clearly 
attempting some kind some of kind of coup coup on this airplane and they're like yeah how adorable and like, okay i remember being really like kind of having to check my own boundaries because i remember you texting me right before that trip maybe like is there anything i should know about traveling with babies and it just fired up my whole system and i was like tips tricks gotta do it think of this don't forget this and then i was like they're gonna be fine like i, I was like why are you getting so worked up about this laura i just i really wanted it to go well for you we did a couple of those things i'm, I'm trying to remember now what we did but there were a couple of things Oh, Laura said X and then and it worked really well. That makes me feel honored. I can't remember what it w- would have been. I mean, honestly, when they're in that baby stage, you just feed them until they pass out. Oh, it was about extra extra helpings of clothes. Oh, yeah. It exactly became absolutely not essential, but it like made the trip a lot better that we had like triplicates. For an international flight in particular, I will offer this piece of advice to our readership. As the mother of two children, I have learned that it really pays off not just to pack extra clothes for your kid for a long flight, because they will certainly excrete upon them. Also pack an extra outfit for yourself for the same reason. Really sucks to sit there and like kid puke for four hours or whatever. Or ten. That's the case maybe. Yes, or ten. (laughs) I was being conservative. (laughs) Yeah, no, I thought that was really good advice. Likewise, the, the flight attendants were amazing. And I think the pandemic in general, of course sort of has has foregrounded the weird kind of care work that is uh, and the yes. the predictably gender dimensions of it. Right. Right. And the way that it kind of sinks in and out, right? Like the way on the one hand, it's very much sort of feminized labor sort of in the way mm-hmm. broader society seems to think of it. On the other hand, it's a profession where apparently it doesn't dissuade anyone from punching a flight attendant, which is which Incredible, is also, that. you know, I mean, uh, kind of interesting. And especially when they became sort of kind of drafted into a culture war in the United States, I think as like usually on the, the side of, point. of, you know, oppression, right? In the sense that like you were forced to keep a tiny piece of cloth in front of your mouth. Oppression! Real 1984 shit, that one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's put it this way. To, to some white men that may be uh, the most oppressed they've ever been. Um, sure and that is. should give them pause. No, I take I take your point, though, that there there's a position here where these women are like fragile, little feminized vessels of labor until they're in someone's way, and then they're punchable. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and they're the only ones who know, who know what's going on, right? That's right? the other thing, that it isn't ultimately a massively ton of authority that comes with it, right? I mean, I'm guessing that punching a flight attendant is among the worst punches you can throw from the point of view of, like, jail time. I agree. I think a cop is, like, top, and then, like, right. we're getting to flight attendants fairly quickly, is my guess. Like, the Federal Aviation Administration exactly. likely frowns on this practice. Exactly. Well, that is an important point that actually kind of crucially interweaves with one of the struggles that this book outlines, which is one of the sort of employment rights struggles implicit to these flight attendants, like efforts to unionize and improve working conditions, etc., was they had a long struggle to be recognized as safety professionals. Right in the same way that like a policeman or whatever would be. And they were out here making these points over and over again that they were like, look, we're just miniskirts serving you a drink until there's an actual emergency and the plane needs to be evacuated and you need people who are trained in safety to facilitate that. And there's nobody but the stewardesses to do that. So you make a very important point that we've seen really evidenced in the pandemic here. I was also reminded as you were talking that I think it's important not to forget on the feminist present that the term emotional labor was coined by Arlie Russell Hochschild in reference to stewardesses That's specifically. Right. This is where the whole concept comes from, That's right. this sort of like forcing a performance of emotion to produce customer satisfaction yep. that is very different than what you're feeling internally. And uh, since we see a lot of concept creep lately about what emotional labor is, it's, it's always a good time to re-up that definition. Yep, that's it. 
Well, what do you well, think? Should we should we fly across the bridge? Let's fly across the bridge. Enjoy Laura Good in the feminist present and Adrian Dobb in the feminist absence. <laughs> Enjoy again the superfluousness of men. Okay, the jacket copy on this book was not lying that this is nonfiction that reads like a novel. You know, I picked this book up and I was like, okay, gonna learn something about like feminism labor movement. Like I didn't have a specific dog in the fight. And by page 15, I was like, where do I sign up to lay my life down for Pat Gibbs? Like how, <laughs> how do I get on that team? Is there a registration link? <laughs> so, and I also happened to notice, I'm like a real obsessive devotee of acknowledgements pages. And I noticed that yours mentioned that you got this idea for this book during a fact check. So my first question is like, where did this book originate? Like, where's the light bulb? Where's the click moment for this book for you? Right. Well, um, for a few years, I've, I've been a travel journalist up I until, I guess, the beginning of the pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I used to have a column in the New York Times travel section where I interviewed celebrities about what they took in their carry-on luggage. FYI, oh, best job I have ever had. That's fascinating. So I could talk for and four so hours easy. about that alone, but please go on. <laughs> yeah, no, it was a really great gig. And one of the people I interviewed was was Adam Conover, who um, he's like a comedian right now. He has a podcast called Factually. Um, but a few years ago, he had a TV show called Adam Ruins Everything that was basically myth busting. Okay. And he was telling me in the interview about a recent episode that he'd done on flight attendants and the golden age of travel. And it was all about how when we think about, you know, flight attendants and the 1960s, we think. Don Draper, cocktails, roast beef on the plane, impossibly glamorous stewardesses. And he said, like, yes, all that was true. But the sort of like flip side of that was that these women were working like in terrible conditions. They had inc- like incredibly difficult appearance standards to maintain. Um, that basically they were they had they had they were the civil rights were being violated all the time. Um, that was just a really difficult working situation. Yeah. And I said to him, at like well, when he was telling me this, I was like, wow, that sounds like it would make a great book. And here we are. <laughs> and here we are. Okay, so like. My jaw was on the... Like, some of this was stuff that I knew. Everybody knows that there were weight requirements and are weight requirements for flight attendants. But you went into such granular detail. Like, there was such excellent research surfaced on, like, the specifics of the wardrobe requirements. Now, can you just take us through briefly the typical wardrobe requirements of a stewardess in the early 60s in this country? (laughs) Um, Well, the uniforms were something I was also fascinated by just incredible Um, and they changed a lot over the years I think in the 60s they started out with sort of like a kind of a militaristic look you know long skirts Mm -hmm. and and button jackets and then people kind of went rogue the airlines I mean in 1960s and 1965 Braniff, which is no longer around, they had Mm -hmm. these sort of very elaborate psychedelic uniforms, flowy pants and skirts and jackets. They were designed by Emilio Pucci, and they even had a clear plastic bubble-shaped helmet that the stewardesses were supposed to wear to protect themselves from the rain. Um, 
Braniff also launched this campaign called the Airstrip, which was an advertising campaign that promised that when you got on a Braniff flight, the stewardesses would slowly take off bits of their uniform throughout the flight. You know, they'd slip into something more comfortable to serve you a cocktail and then put on like a frilly God. apron for dinner. And by the end of the flight, they were wearing, they were still wearing clothes, but they were smaller clothes. So wild. It was wild. <laughs> and then, you know, as the 70s took hold and it was more like a, you know, sexual liberation, the uniforms got very small. There were a lot of miniskirts. There were hot pants. There were go-go boots. There was American Airlines for a while had a sort of frontier look when they had like a tartan miniskirt and a raccoon hat, like a Daniel Boone style raccoon the hat. The raccoon hat really made an impression <laughs> on me. The Trying to get anybody to take you seriously as a working professional Can in a raccoon imagine? hat really illustrates the stakes yes, here. Yeah. exactly. And at TWA <laughs> for a while, they had dresses, uniforms that were made out of paper and like they were just. The dresses were like tearing and ripping all the time. And the flight attendants were just sort of trying to patch them back together mid-flight. Um, yeah, it was it's quite the wild ride. Well, and we should note on top of all of these incredibly specific sort of fashion requirements, there were requirements that these working professionals maintain these uniforms to be spick and span and flawless at all times, which kind of came into collision with the fact that they were getting paid dog shit, you know, and couldn't afford to have six extra uniforms in their closet. So I guess my question there, I'm so glad you brought up Mad Men because I was thinking of it the whole time. Like you found such fantastic human ambassadors into this story is, is the word I'm going to choose. How did you find these women? How did you get them to talk to you? What was your relationship with them like? Um, well, I have to say, first of all, that these women are just some of the most like interesting, feisty women that I have met. Yes. Just really, really provocative and... And basically in stark contradiction to what people think of when they think of as a flight attendant, especially what they thought of as a flight attendant 50 years ago. Completely. Pat Gibbs, who is um, one of my two main flight attendant characters, I'll call them. I was introduced to her through through Adam Conover because she had been on his show. And Pat is somebody who went from at the age of 19, joining American Airlines to become a stewardess. Her only ambition in life was to become a stewardess supervisor. Or like maybe a manager at American and Airlines. to get away from her mother, which I thought was a really great to characterological get, to get detail. Away from her mother, <laughs> yes, right, 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 which probably underlines quite a lot of, uh, you know, famous people's. <laughs> oh yeah, it was very relatable. Yeah, yes, yes, and basically the book sort of traces her evolution into this militant labor leader who, by the end of the book, uh, spoiler alert, basically becomes the the driving force behind pulling the American Airlines flight attendants out of a, the Transport Workers Union, this huge international organization, and into their own women-led union. Pat is about to turn 80. She lives in Texas. I went down to visit her. She's just an absolute, like, firecracker and troublemaker. And if you read the book, you can see how, like, she, yeah. she sort of evolves and becomes that person with a lot of twists and turns along the way. And she has her counterpart, really, which is Tommy Hutto Blake, who was about 10 years younger. She became a flight attendant, I think, in 1970. And she was also, you know, somebody who thought she would become a flight attendant for a few years and travel and, you know, then go back to, to you know, social justice work or maybe become a journalist. And she ended up flying for more than 40 years. She became a president of the flight attendants union several times. And she also became this, like, really powerful labor leader and they're just two two really fascinating people who 
are, like I said, they're not what you expect when you think of the word stewardess. No. And, you know, the, the two women you're highlighting here had long careers as stewardesses and also long careers as labor organizers and leaders, you know, and that's what one of the things that I found so fascinating about them. I am not here to diminish just being a stewardess, which I'm putting in scare quotes, but it was fascinating to watch Pat, for example, like enter this job, as you say, not really expecting much from it, kind of just, you know, assuming she'll be among the rank and file, not really challenging authority. And then you draw so well, this process of her just getting pissed off by these minor indignities and like going back to the wardrobe i i can't let go of the wardrobe <laughs> you detailed really beautifully the externalities of the wardrobe but one of the things that fascinated me was the requirements of undergarments right like my ass is sitting here in sweats right now working from home i did not need it <laughs> right you know and like you know i definitely think writers should have a union and that's a subject for another day but i didn't need anybody to enforce that wardrobe like no Nobody had to die for me to sit here in sweatpants. This is not the case for stewardesses, right? Like, really what has had my jaw on the floor is the girdle checks. Can you take us through the girdle checks, Nell? Yeah, I also found this very hard to believe, but um, at least yeah. up until the late 60s and possibly just into the early 70s, wearing a girdle, like this very tight, constrictive undergarment, was a requirement for the stewardesses because what they've told me is that the supervisors didn't want to see any moving parts. <laughs> there should be no jiggling Jesus on the airplane. Yes. So it was normal for a supervisor or really even like a pilot. You know, the pilots on the plane had total control over everything. But mostly the supervisors, the stewardess supervisors could just kind of like give you a little flick on the butt to make sure that you were wearing your girdle. And that was like totally normal. And you know, they, they didn't, the stewardesses at that point, they didn't really think anything of it. It was, it was just part of the job. Sanctioned workplace fondling, just part of the job. <laughs> As you were talking, I was drawing like a typical stewardess workday in 1963 would be like, get up at the crack of dawn in your apartment that you share with maybe four other stewardesses, get your ass to LaGuardia or whatever to fly all the flights in which you have to get meal service out, you know, on a one hour flight. All the while, any number of your male colleagues can just decide to grab your ass in like a sanctioned way. <laughs> You're making maybe $40,000 a year in New York City, something like the, the, the today's equivalent of $40,000 a year in New York City. And then you return to a hotel room that you then have to share probably with a stranger who might come in at any time of the night, right? Do <laughs> <laughs> you make that sound like it could, literally anyone could just let themselves into a hotel room, but it was they were sharing with other stewardesses. Good point. I will point that out. Good point. Um, and don't forget to allow time in that schedule to take your amphetamines to keep your weight down. Very important point. Yes. Thank you. God. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that... Handed out by the company doctor. Oh, my God. That, I mean, the prevalence of eating disorders under these conditions seems like a no-brainer and is that something that like this industry is still reckoning like where have these weight requirements landed you know the book the book trails off somewhere in the 70s where are we now um well the book doesn't trail off it ends you know very it decisively with off. an extremely Absolutely. powerful climactic drum dramatic filled ending um <laughs> <laughs> including a gorilla suit yeah <laughs> including a gorilla suit yes um but no there the weight requirement honestly is still 
being fought over, which if you can believe it. Um, and like, yeah. obviously things have changed a lot. And if you get on a plane now, you will see a lot of flight attendants who are not a, like a size four. But in some airlines, they've swapped out a weight limit for like a performance indicator. You have to be able to like lift a certain amount and fit through the emergency exit and do these sorts of things. And if you can pass this kind of like presidential fitness test, then it's okay. It doesn't matter oh what God. you weigh. But in other airlines, that's not true. And um, there's even been some stories in the news recently about, you know, airlines, especially outside the United States, that still have very stringent weight requirements, like get on the scale. Here's a diet you should take. Don't come back to work until you've dropped this many pounds. Ugh. In the 60s, you could have the job for up to 13 years, but you could have an eating disorder forever. <laughs> it's wild. Can you take us through, this was another part of the book that I thought was so expertly researched. Can you take us through what the labor function of those weight requirements was for the advantage of the airlines? Sure. Um, well, the, the appearance requirements, just to get an interview for the job, like in the 60s, say, and into the 70s, you had to be, you had to meet this maximum in a weight chart. You couldn't be above a maximum for, based on your height. Right. Um, you had to have, you know, clear skin, no glasses, straight teeth, hair had to be done a certain way, always like nail polish. That was just even to, to get the job. And a lot of my stewardesses described going to the interview, getting into the interview room, you know, and the person interviewing them would ask them to like walk to the wall and walk back or just turn around, you know, and they would just stare at their body and make sure that it was acceptable. But it was basically a way that the airlines could... A, you could keep the workforce young and, you know, junior and therefore pay them less because a lot of people, you know, they their metabolism slows down or for whatever reason, they get heavier as they get older. It's harder to, to maintain this like very, very strict weight. Um, so it was a good way to keep the, the workforce particularly youthful. And, you know, when you have workers who aren't on the job for that long, they're not that interested in like fighting for better pay or taking up, you know, the battle for health care benefits or, or all those things. So that was an advantage. Right. But also the stewardesses were a marketing device. Um, there became a point in the in the 60s and 70s where, you know, every airline was was safe to fly and they all had kind of similar destinations. And so they were all looking for a way to differentiate themselves, you know, to to sell tickets to these male business travelers, which were definitely the target market. Mm -hmm. And the way they decided to do that was through the stewardesses. So that accounts for some of these unusual uniforms or these like, you know, uh, themed flights or, you know, and they produced hundreds of ads, basically just pictures of the women talking about how they take such good care of you. They make it look like it's not even work. United Airlines had a tagline. She's going to make someone a great wife. One of them came right out and said, fly me like I'm Linda. Fly me with a picture of a stewardess named Linda. Um, it goes on and on. Yep. So the stewardesses were essentially just like a great, great marketing tool. And as the 70s went on and there was more, like I said, sexual liberation, like these ads just went buck wild. But it was absolutely in the interest of the airlines to keep their workforce young, exactly. thin, conventionally attractive. And they they really went with that for as long as they possibly could. Man, did they. And, and I, I just thought that was such a powerful point about how essentially the weight regulations functioned in place of the age regulations by keeping out the more senior employees who have organizing viability and increased salary by seniority and more desirable more desirable flights was one thing that you you your research attached to seniority and that would definitely impact how much time you have to organize too right like so it was actually 
an insidiously, incredibly effective tool for preventing these labor organizations. Well, and as were the regulations in the 60s that my stewardesses kind of fought and got rid of, which were marriage and pregnancy restrictions. So throughout the 60s, if you got married, you were fired from the job. If you had children, you were fired from the job. And if you turned 32, in some some cases, a few airlines would let you stay until you were 35. Mm Mm-hmm. But they outright just would like would fire you on your on your birthday and be like, well, nice knowing you. So that was a, another pretty effective way to keep the job um, targeted only at young women who maybe were not going to be around long enough to to organize or to fight the company on these sexist working conditions right. or to make any kind of substantive change. It's such an insidious bait and switch, isn't it? Because on one hand, you have this engine that could be really good for getting in women into the workforce. It has its own training. It has a very specific track. You know, once you once you make it into the, the track, they're going to train you and employ you. But then the specific condition of that employment is like in the first contract you sign, you know that you're gone at age 32. So you make this investment that is then truncated by the company. And it's it's so backwards. It's so strange. You know, okay, so you brought in advertising, which is just a hugely important force in all of this. And I was really struck by the ongoing tension between the sort of advertising forces and the organizing forces that really comes to a head in this book, which, as you know, does not trail off and instead comes into a very, very explosive. (laughs) (laughs) I really love the gorillas. Thank you, Laura. Um, But I'd love to talk a little bit about that because I was also really struck by the lived impacts on how the advertising made people treat the stewardesses, right? Like this was why the stewardesses cared about the advertising. So can you talk a little bit about like how people treated these stewardesses as a result of their being portrayed as completely like, you know, non-human and disposable sex objects in this advertising? Yeah. Well, I mean, listeners can probably guess what the effect of that was, but the, you know, the, the idea was that, and I think you can even see this now the way people treat flight attendants, like the lack of respect was just incredible. And, you know, you could see how the airlines were sort of you know, they were controlling this. They were encouraging passengers to think of these stewardesses as like playboy bunnies in the sky. Um, there was even a series of books that somebody wrote that were you know, purported to be written by a stewardess called uh, Coffee, Tea or Me. Because, you know, when they used to, <laughs> used to offer on the plane coffee, tea or milk, uh, apparently milk used to be commonly served on airplanes. Uh-huh. So so there's a series of books supposedly written by a stewardess who, you know, flew around the world, very promiscuous, a man in a man in every airport, um, and like a whole series, and that really took off. And when you saw ad after ad portraying like a half-naked stewardess or a stewardess in a bathing suit or ad copy that just talked about, you know, our new planes have extra wide aisles, perfect for watching the beautiful girls go by. I mean, they were explicitly telling passengers that that's what the women were there for. Open season. Yeah. Open season. Yeah, Here is your theater for sanctioned sexual harassment. I was also like permanently haunted by the image of these stewardesses who were being paid so little they couldn't afford to take a cab home from the airport after work. 
you know, walking home across a bridge in the middle of the night, being followed by men masturbating in their cars. And like this happened serially. So so to me, that argues that like the lived impact on these stewardesses was definitely not just in flight. Right. Absolutely. Like, I mean, even some of the women in my book talk to me about this, about how they just felt disrespected by like their husband's friends would be like, oh, you married a stewardess, like wink, wink, you know, and right. I think even you can even like really you can see this today. Like when I was researching this book. There were so many instances of like stewardess porn that came up when I was trying to Google things that were not related to porn at all. Um, It's just a really pervasive thing that has been around again for like 50 years and just hasn't gone away. And you have to and like the people who have to go to work every day with that specter sort of hanging over them. I mean, I have permanent affection for stewardesses now called flight attendants because I have traveled with babies. (laughs) Right. Like there have been a few exceptions, but by and large, there is no one better trained or more qualified than a flight attendant. I mean, I've seen flight attendants come out with little toys for my kids. Like they have, they have a procedure. They know what to do. So anyway, I, I will always ride for stewardesses because of that. Yeah. I mean, it's a really hard job. It's a really it's a physical really job. Hard job. And yeah. Yeah. I think recently also some attention has come to the fact that stewardesses, or I'm sorry, flight attendants are not paid for boarding for the time that they spend boarding the plane. And what? if you're sitting on a plane that's like on the tarmac for two hours because right. it doesn't take off. They're not paid for that time. You know, I did there's not like a, know they're that. only paid for the time that they're in the air. Yeah, it's atrocious. So it's like it's still a physically hard job. Yeah. It's hard. I mean, it's hard on your body. You know, you're flying all around the world, different time zones. It's exhausting. Just spending time on planes, I feel like is kind of so enervating anyway. At least totally. I feel that way as a traveler. Totally. It was interesting what you note about the marriage and pregnancy requirements. Obviously, those are central in the civil rights dispute here. And it was so interesting because I grew up in the Twin Cities of Minnesota, and that was a Northwest hub. And then Delta acquired Northwest, and it became a Delta sort of secondary hub to Atlanta. So I grew up with tons of kids whose moms were flight attendants, right? And dads who were pilots, et cetera, or reverse. But usually it went along those gender lines. And so it was interesting to read this book, you know, in which that was such a the pregnancy and marriage issue was such a civil rights concern, because I grew up with this image of flight attendant as like a great job for a mom, you know, like once you got some seniority, you had some flexibility and all of that. But like, not so for the women in the 60s. (laughs) Not so. Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely true. It is. It's true now that now that you're allowed to, you know, have kids and Mm -hmm. be a flight attendant. um, I think it is true in a lot of ways. The flexibility is, I would say, the main perk of the job. The fact that you can stack your flights. You're flying for two weeks. A lot of people are, you know, I recently talked to somebody who said that they know a flight attendant who commutes from Sydney, Australia to, I think, Boston. Wow. Flies for like two weeks out of every month and then flies back to Sydney. (laughs) So a lot of flight attendants commute to work by plane. They don't live in the, you know, the bases because it's very expensive to live in those places. So they fly somewhere, they do for two weeks and then they can go home and have two weeks when they're not working. Um, so there, there is that perk, but yeah, there's a lot of other disadvantages. I'm balancing everything I want to talk about here because there's so much deep dive on the stewardesses, but then there's also the stewardesses as part of the second wave feminist movement, which is absolutely crucial. I mean, I was totally nerding out on the details in this book about how central stewardesses were to the formation of the National Organization for Women, for example, and like Gloria Steinem rolling into all of these meetings was amazing. So I would love to hear you talk in your expertly researched voice about like 
how were stewardesses central in the formation of now and also what is title nine and how or title seven and how does it factor in here because that's really important i I also always call it title (laughs) nine it's so hard that's the only title we ever talk about but like it's title seven right exactly yeah um well there was sort of this interesting synergy in the formation of the national organization for women and it's a lot of it started with the establishment of the equal employment opportunity commission um which was that itself was created by the civil rights act in in 1964 such an intersectional snarl in the early days of the EEOC. I was fascinated by that. Absolutely. Because like in the view of virtually everyone, the EEOC was created to deal with with race, right. uh, like with racism, with race and employment. Right. But there was a clause in Title VII of the Civil Rights Act that's included sex as a basis for like as something you could not discriminate on the basis of. And the stewardesses were basically some of the first people to really seize upon that. There's a lot of stories, some of them I'm sure are apocryphal, but about how sex even made it into into Title VII. And there's an idea that it was like a joke by a Republican senator who thought that meant that the Civil Rights Act wouldn't pass if he Ooh, added sex wow. to, the, to the clause. Um, so there's a lot of stuff going on, uh, going on with that. But it was, in fact, like flight attendants who first thought like, okay, we're in, in an industry in which like we have all these restrictions on our work and you know, all these sex working restrictions and Title VII is our way to get some parity. So they launched complaints with the EEOC. There were hearings um, in which the airlines argued that there's an exception for in Title VII that says that if something is a bona fide, bona fide? Let's go bona fide. I like that. Qualification. Yeah. I've never managed to actually figure out how to pronounce, like it. pronounce, that, pronounce that word. <laughs> yeah, but that... um. Basically, that being a woman was an essential part of being a flight attendant, that like only women could do the job. And the airline set up hearings at the EEOC in which they argued that it was an inherently female job, that um, only women could do it because of all these inherently female characteristics, which included an interest in decor. They had a very, very long list of things that mm-hmm. women liked, and that's why they were good at being flight attendants. One of them was decor. I don't know why. Yeah, but but stewardesses really were like some of the first people to to take it and run with it. And some of the changes that they made were then became case law, like they became the basis for future gender discrimination suits that have really gone on to help like American working women today. It's pretty amazing. Totally. I am like not a legal scholar, but that was such fascinating legal history of the precedents that those built for sex discrimination cases. <laughs> I thought it right. was so and, funny. And nobody knows about it. I think, well, until Totally. <laughs> no, I was I was laughing out loud at the scene you depicted of, was it Tommy who first walked into the EEOC office? Who was the one who filed the first complaint that got this like the was, mystified uh, looks? a flight attendant called Barbara Rhodes, but her nickname was Dusty. Dusty Rhodes. Dusty. Dusty Rhodes, that's who yeah. it was. Like the yes. blank faces she got when she had this like litany of grievances that were like eminently valid. <laughs> People right. were just like, what are you doing here? <laughs> like, are you right. lost? This is like, this is not the she place wasn't. for you. But no, she she kept pushing. Yeah, pretty amazing. So fascinating. And like, how does Gloria Steinem weave her way in here? Give us <laughs> give us some of the cameos for people who haven't read the book yet. Sure. Well, um, it all starts with an organization with this in, in 1972 with the incredibly of its time name of Stewardesses for Women's Rights. Love it. Which has to be like one of my favorite 
collection of words of of all time. Totally. And their symbol, their symbol is like the pictograph for women, like the circle and the line with a little cross through it, with a set of wings coming out one side, like the wings that you know flight attendants wear. I thought it was a great logo. Honestly, I really liked it. I have a T-shirt with it. It's like really perfect. Yes! I think it's so seventies. Yes! <laughs> so seventies. Yes. So seventies. And so the woman who who started this group, which was you know designed to fight against the sexist restrictions of the job, the founder, she put this tiny ad in the back of the first issue of Ms. Magazine. And um, Tommy, who is one of the the main characters in my book, she bought the issue of Ms. Magazine, was like bowled over by it. Couldn't I believe it. I loved that scene. And, yeah. And, yeah. And then she saw this tiny ad. She was like, stewardesses for women's rights. I got to go to this. So she gathers up a couple of friends, also stewardesses. They go to the basement of a church in the village in New York. They walk in. There's stewardesses from all these different airlines and Gloria Steinem. And she was somebody that the stewardesses loved. And even when I talk to them now, they say, like, no one could say anything bad to me about Gloria Steinem. She was a huge supporter of theirs. You know, she flew all the time for her work Mm -hmm. and she would become friends with them and they would, you know, um, like do her favors because they just knew that she was this wonderful supporter of theirs. And she still has she she still is, honestly. I actually just had a conversation with her last week, which was a, Shut oh, up. such a thrill. Shut up. No, it was really. Oh, my God. <laughs> Tell me everything. Yeah. <laughs> I was invited to to talk to her about flight attendants um, because, like I said, she has been a support, their supporter Clearly, for 15 yeah. years. And so I got to have this like really interesting conversation with her about my book and about flight attendants in general. And so she is just like this longtime supporter. And they are also like her biggest fan. And throughout the book, you know, she makes a number of appearances. Uh, she comes to their events. Yeah. She, she shows up at these meetings. She does everything she can to help them, like, push their agenda forward. It's really inspiring. It was inspiring and also really inspiring how early Gloria saw the political viability of flight attendants. These were the people who accompanied the politicians to their destinations. They had access and influence that not everyone would see, but Gloria saw it. And I thought that was fabulous and fascinating. Yeah, Gloria saw it. And that that very thing is sort of the it's also the thing that makes it so hard to organize stewardesses, like yes, to unionize yes. stewardesses, because, you know, they're always traveling. They're always in a different totally. place. Their schedules change every month. So as a group, it's like actually quite hard to organize. It's not like organizing workers, you know, in a factory or like an Amazon warehouse, for example, or a Starbucks mm-hmm. store, um, because they're mm-hmm. always on the move. And, you know, when I was going through some of these archives, I would find letters that stewardesses had written to the group, to the stewardesses for women's rights group, asking for more information or telling all these stories about how their manager was grabbing their ass all the time or complaining about the uniforms basically just like looking for sisterly support and these letters are all written on like hotel stationery you know it's always from like they're on a layover somewhere and they have this hotel stationery and they send in in the letter like they're they're always on the move so that's kind of the the other part of why (laughs) of travel for them no the material history of that is fascinating and oh my god i so i have to tell you like a funny little story that connects to why i was interested in this book so Flip back the tape like 1 billion years ago, actually like 15 years ago, I'm a senior in college at Columbia and I'm writing a paper, like a final paper for a history class. And I choose as my subject, the first issue of Ms. Magazine. I was really pissed at my university in that moment because Columbia in their like endless libraries did not house such a copy of Ms. Magazine. And you will probably be shocked to hear I had to go across the street to Barnard College where they surely did have a copy of Ms. Magazine, (laughs) of every single Ms. Magazine, including the first one. Uh So I'm like literally like in the microfiche section. Like I think this was one of the only times I've ever used microfiche pouring over this magazine, making copious notes. 
definitely sobbing in this like microfiche booth. And one of the things that I remember noticing was that tiny ad that you just mentioned. Really? And wow. I didn't I didn't know anything about it. You know, like I didn't have any context to connect it to, but it stuck with me. I was like, even the stewardesses were in on this. This is fascinating. So when I saw your book and that it mentioned now and Gloria Steinem, I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. And so I was like cheering when you got to that ad because I was like, I remember that ad. It was like there were so many like crucial, fascinating details, but that was one of the ones that I remembered from the inaugural I can't believe Liz. that you spotted that. That's amazing because it was a really small ad Tiny. in the back of the magazine. Tiny. I kind of think it was an accident that like that Tommy even saw it on that flight, but they were, you know, they had picked up this copy of Miz and it just really spoke to them. It was 1972 yeah. and they read it cover to cover. Like they were like, oh my God, somebody finally is saying what we've been thinking. Exactly. Um, so yeah. Wow. That's a really incredible that you had. Isn't that wild? I was that. Like, wait a minute. I, I know this from somewhere. Yeah. I loved that scene of the three stewardesses buying a single copy of Miz and trying to pass it around and then being everyone wanted to take it home. So they just <laughs> had to go buy more. And that, that illustrates so deftly why that issue was such a success. I mean, that. what were the figures on how that issue sold? Like, it sold out, it broke records. I don't remember the specifics. Yeah, it sold out in like eight days. They got like yeah. thousands of letters from, from women all over the country. Like, it was, it definitely met a need. Yeah, for sure. I mean, this was such an interesting retrospective of the second wave feminism movement of the 70s. Like, the stewardesses were such an excellent vehicle for taking us through that decade. And one of the things I was thinking, I was like, oh my god, Nell, you did so much research for this book. And it was, it was interwoven so <laughs> so fluently. Like, I really liked your choice to use EndNotes so that you didn't have to cite every single thing. Like, I thought that made for a really fluent read. As someone who does some research, you know, I know that not all of it makes it into the final text. So, like, were there any juicy details that surfaced in your research that didn't make it into the final text would be a question I have. <laughs> um, well, I did a whole interview. I went to Miami and I had a, a meeting with uh, Patricia Ireland. She was a president of the National Organization for Women for 10 years. Mm -hmm. She's a labor lawyer now. She's like a very prominent feminist and a really interesting person. And she was a stewardess. She was a Pan Am stewardess back in the day uh, in the in 67 to 72. And she had her own sort of moment of kind of like <laughs> she would watch the women's marches that were going on and she would be like sitting in Miami and being like, oh, I'd like to be out there, but I can't join them because I'm going to get like I might get sunburned. And if she got sunburned, Pan Am would fire her. Like she wasn't actually allowed to get a sunburn or and because she would be fired. Um, and she had her own sort of like feminist moment when she realized that her husband, who was a student, um, he needed some kind of surgery and Pan Am's insurance wouldn't cover him for it, even though, you know, they were married because they couldn't imagine that a woman would be the head of the household. And so she basically like takes this up the ladder a little bit and then they start going like wow. okay 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 it's fine fine um, fine fine <laughs> yeah yeah fine 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 fine. but actually but then like all of a sudden every stewardess realized like oh right their insurance could cover their families when previously it had only been for you know male pilots and their families um i think it was one of the things that sort of started her off on her feminist trajectory but i actually wow. i did have to, i did have to cut that from the book yeah I mean, I can see how that how there are other things that were really, really crucial. But that's fascinating because like the health insurance issue has become a really big issue in like feminist rights and gay rights. Like that's a big thing. For sure. For sure. I yeah. can see how that would be an important legal precedent. I was also really interested in the role of gay people in this book. Right. I thought I mean, I have to start with a compliment and a spoiler. 
Pat Gibbs is a lesbian. But <laughs> you don't find that out until like page 100. Part of it is because she hasn't quite like located that in her life yet. But I thought that was a really mm, humanizing and non-sensational choice to let the reader kind of discover it along with Pat and like not to put that on the first page. It would have been kind of sensational to be like, and she was a lesbian stewardess in 1963 <laughs> or whatever. But like we see we see lesbians be influential in the story. We also see gay men be influential in the story. How does the story of queerness interweave itself through this? Um, I would say slowly. <laughs> because... Very slowly. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um... Um, actually, but now talking to these people who have been working as flight attendants, who are working as flight attendants in the 60s and 70s, tons of them have like are, are like, oh yes, I'm I'm gay. Yeah, yeah. Um, but back then it was like absolutely a secret. And they it's like not up- that hard. Sorry to interrupt you, but it's like not that hard to put that together in all of these situations <laughs> where women are rooming together for years and years and years that like someone might have crossed the hall into the other bedroom eventually. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yes. But it was yeah. So there were you know some women on the plane who who were lesbians, but it, you were not out. Like to be out was. Um, it was, you know, unacceptable. Like that was a termination sentence. Yeah. Yeah. And when and when men finally came on board, uh, I think in 1972, I'm talking on domestic flights, the international airlines mm-hmm. already hired men. But I think it was 1972 when men started to be hired as flight attendants on domestic flights. And then a lot of them were gay and they sort of formed almost a partnership with the women on board, not just with the gay women. Yes. But um, there's yes. this sort of feeling of like, Tommy, in my book, she always describes it as the Republicans in the cockpit and the Democrats in the cabin. And there was this sort of dividing Another line. You know, the, the pilots yeah. are all like these. Most of them came out of the military. A lot of them had flown in Vietnam. They were all like very right wing Republican, you know, living in the suburbs, mm-hmm. that kind of like lifestyle. And then in the cabin, you had these sort of like more freewheeling flight attendants who were living in New York and doing their own thing and loved the freedom of the job. Mm-hmm. Basically, the pilots were a little bit were kind of enemies in a lot of ways. They were very dismissive of the stewardesses. They treated them like mascots. They would call them sweethearts instead of learning their names and demand that they bring them cups of coffee. And so when gay men started flying, they kind of formed this alliance with the women because like everyone was being treated like shit by the cockpit. <laughs> So yeah. it was like, it became yeah. like a nice sort it's of a powerful thing. ally. Force. Yeah, it really was. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's so interesting. I really, <laughs> there was a really offensive, but also really funny quote. I think, remind me, was it a CEO or someone who was like, and all the men who try to be stewards, everybody knows they're queer than a $3 bill. Yes. <laughs> it's like, wow, yes. really comfortable saying the quiet part loud there. <laughs> very, very comfortable. Like, absolutely. It was like a fireable offense. Like, and I think that was one of the reasons it took them so long to hire men in the beginning is because they were afraid oh. of having too many gays on the plane. Sure fascinating. No, I just, in this podcast specifically, we are often interested in the intersections between the sort of gay liberation movement and the women's liberation movement. And this represented a really fascinating one. It was like the fag hags of the sky, sort of, you know? (laughs) (laughs) That'll be my sequel. (laughs) Fag hags in the sky. Come back for an interview on that. You know, one thing I definitely wanted to talk about, and you already mentioned this with your, with your what's in a flight attendance bag series, which is my next internet rabbit hole. But like, you've been a a really seasoned, experienced travel journalist. And I have to imagine that played a role in the formation of this book. So like, could you draw a line between that experience and this book? Um, I would like to, but I think it's mostly that my agent was like, oh, you're the perfect person to write this book. And this will be a good way, easy way to sell the book because, you know, you've been writing about travel for so long and you travel all the time. I have to agree. Yeah, but I, I wouldn't actually say that I could really connect my travel writing, which was more like 
36 hours in Buenos Aires or where to eat in Bogota sure. to to this this sure. like this work of like narrative nonfiction of like labor history yeah yeah exactly <laughs> I'm not I'm not really sure I would love to be able to connect those dots but I don't think I can uh like if I'm being honest well that's fascinating I mean that just tells me that you have like lots of different skills then if they aren't as connected as they might appear it also tells me you have a good agent because I agree with the point there about marketability and like you're being a good verified expert for this she is she's she's a wonderful agent yes um and I do have a diverse range of interests and businesses and side hustles so that's true fantastic I mean what lingers with you about this book you know like what I guess I guess my question here is like what kept you up at night about this issue like what bothered you the most? What inflamed you the most? You know, like projects like this take a lot of research and stamina. Like what kept you going? What was the core crux of this? Um, well, definitely a lot of rage. Um, <laughs> Very reliable motivator. <laughs> <No>. Yes. <laughs> Very reliable. And just like, yeah, being able to, you know, you know, it wasn't that long ago, I guess. No, I feel like in, you know, no. the 70s, like, it, you know, it. I guess it seems like 50 years ago now, but it didn't seem like that long ago that they were going through all these things. And they were fighting these battles that, mm-hmm. you know, we are now benefiting from. Um, but I do feel like the like to be a woman in like the 1970s is so different than being a woman in 2022. Oh, like, my God. Circumstances are, are unbelievable, unbelievably different. Thanks to the work that these women put in. Absolutely. Um, and so... So anger, a lot of anger kept me up at night. But honestly, it is really like the the characters themselves. Like when you described it sort of as a novel, like I really appreciate that because I kind of think of it as a little bit of like an adventure story, you know? Yeah, like they start totally. out one place, they end up somewhere completely unpredictable Absolutely. and totally different. Um, and they like, you know, they change. They change along the way as exactly. the circumstances change. But I just felt like there were so many twists and turns and sort of dramatic scenes. And I re- I mean, it was like, for me, it was like very stimulating to, to read about and to write about and to get to interview these women about. Um, it was really fun i'm having this image of you sitting down with pat gibbs and then her being like and then i got out the gorilla suit (laughs) you know i'm just being like oh my god this is gonna get optioned this is gonna be a film (laughs) such a cinematic moment she is unbelievable like she is such an interesting person such a delight to be around full of stories like that and she keeps incredible archives also she has like saved everything every kind of uniform she's ever worn she has scrapbooks full of all the articles people have written about her Um, she just always does so many unexpected things and she's like a fantastic storyteller and yeah it's really really fun to to spend time with her and to get to put like even just a small portion of her crazy stories into the book yeah and what you say about change I mean not one of these women is remotely the same at the end of this book as she is at the beginning we see all of them go through intense transformative journeys and i thought that was fabulous yeah yeah and they're there's yeah they're they're very interesting people and to sort of go get to go along with them on that journey was was such a pleasure really an honor yeah and i thought i i can totally believe that and i also thought there was something incredibly well timed about this book because i think there is a temptation sometimes as we become more intersectional and inclusive you know in the third or fourth wave of feminism whatever you want to call it, to kind of dismiss the gains of the second wave for being too white or too elitist or educated. And like all of those critiques are valid. Like all all of those critiques are valid. And absolutely. And not but, but and 
there is a reason why there are no girdle checks on my ass today, you know, and it is because of those women. And there's a reason why these precedents in legal cases hold, and it is because of these women. If you have ever benefited from a rape crisis center or a legal abortion, it is because of these women. So like, I'm always very anxious not to erase those gains for their significance, you know? Yes, I I could not agree more. And uh, I absolutely like understand all the flaws that are involved like in second wave feminism. And there are many Mm -hmm. and I... Yes, as you said, 100% legitimate, yes. absolutely valid. And yet, yeah, the work that they put in and, and the like, we can see we are living those benefits right now. Yeah. And even though if they weren't like the most, you know, intersectional or inclusive people, of course, but like still they they put in a lot of incredibly hard work Um and they really, they really kind of like changed the world. Um, yeah, I like having a credit card in my own name, for example. Like, I enjoy that. Personally, <laughs> right. I enjoy being able to own things in my own name. That would be a second wave feminist gain. Exactly. <laughs> Pretty significant. Precisely. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think it's interesting to be able to share that story with a lot of, um, you know, younger women. Yes. Because I, I feel like there's not, no, we're not. No one's given a history of feminism in high school. You know, no, no. one's taught like the, you know, we're getting fewer and fewer of those lessons uh, yes. as, as the years go by. But like no one is really explains to you that like in the early 70s, a woman maybe couldn't have a credit card in her own name or couldn't buy a house. Yeah. And now you can. So, well, for the most part. so And that all of these gains were made in an analog fashion. You know, you do such an exhaustive (laughs) and beautiful job of illustrating these women passing out physical cards, these women hauling physical files. Like, it was not as easy as a click on the internet back then to organize thousands of people towards a common cause, you know? That is true. But I will say that even today, when you are trying to organize workers, they have to sign a physical card. that's true. When, yes. Yeah. Like when I was, I was interviewing Sarah Nelson recently, who's the president of the Association of Flight Attendants, and also like the name to know in labor right now. And she talked. They're running a wow. union drive at Delta because Delta has like around twenty four thousand flight attendants who are not unionized, and they're wow. trying to bring them into the Association of Flight Attendants. And she said during COVID, it was just very difficult because you could not be there in person and get them to sign a card. You know, you had to. It was like more digital organizing. But um, now they're they're back. And they're working on it. So, Oh my gosh, that's wild. I mean, this is such a great book just to brush up on like how labor organizing works, you know, like whether or not you care about stewardesses or air travel, there's, there's a really great how to here in like how to form a union. <laughs> I learned a lot. I was taking notes. <laughs> well, good. Yes. And I also, I feel like the, I got a, a one review that said that even the union negotiations are entertaining. And I was like, Oh, yes. Thank oh my you. God. Because yes. it's, it's, I've learned a lot about labor over the years and about organizing. And it is a lot of it is very boring. <laughs> very, very boring. Oh, totally. So when, so when, when I got a reviewer who said that it was actually interesting to read about, I was like, thank goodness, my work here is done. It took a lot of work. You saw me. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Well, listen, the book is, I'm going to hold it up to you as if you need to see your own book, but I love holding it up. The Great Stewardess Rebellion, How Women Launched a Workplace Revolution at 30,000 Feet. I am stoked about it. I laughed. I cried. I am ready to lame it down my life for these women. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Me too. I would die for all of them. Yes. The Feminist Present is co-hosted by Adrian Dobb and Laura Good. It's produced by Laura Good and edited by Megan Kalfas. All of our original music is by Julie Herndon. We are eternally grateful for funding support from the Institute Named for a Woman in a building named for a woman, the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University, where we are especially grateful to our feminist colleagues Cynthia Newberry, Allison Dahl Crossley, Natalie P. Mason, Jennifer Portillo, Wendy Skidmore, Shivani Mehta, Carolyn Asante Darty, 
and Morgan Kanan. The Feminist Present is also co-sponsored by The Changing Human Experience, producing deep ideas for a better world by supporting Stanford research in the humanities and social sciences.